A 52-year-old male-to-female transgender patient presents the emergency department with one week of progressive increasing thirst, abdominal pain, blurred vision, and painful urination. They have a past medical history of well-controlled HIV on antiretroviral therapy and feminizing body augmentation procedures performed 10 years ago to aid in male-to-female transitioning. They report no changes in their diet, no changes in their medication, and no clear source of where these symptoms came from. On physical exam, massive, bilateral, hardened deposits are noted in the gluteal area, as well as numerous hardened, non-tender nodules deposited throughout the thighs. Laboratory results reveal an extremely high calcium at 18 milliequivalents per liter, as well as an elevated serum creatinine. Is there a toxic cause for this hypercalcemia, renal failure, and vague symptoms? What about these nodules distributed throughout the thighs? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who treat poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And with me as always, my lovely robo-co-host, Toxo. Thrilled to be back again, friends. Back from what, Toxo? Just back in general. Sometimes it seems to me that I only exist in the confines of this podcast, and between episodes it's almost as if I cease to be. Wow, that's pretty dark. We should probably look into getting you a hobby. But anyways... I think we have a great episode today. We're going to explore some very interesting practices in society and the very serious complications that can occur from them. And the case? A mysterious cause of hypercalcemia? I can't wait to dive into this. But before I get going, let's hear what our listeners had to say about what they thought the cause of this toxic hypercalcemia could be. Toxa, can you play the emails? Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the Poison Verse. Our very first guest comes from listener Patrick Rose, a PharmD from Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse, New York. Hi, Ryan and Taxa. Below is my guest for episode 12. Few xenobiotics cause profound hypercalcemia. Xenobiotics that can cause this, but are unlikely in this case, include lithium, thiazide diuretics, and vitamin A. However, nothing in this patient's history makes these exposures likely. Hypervitaminosis D or excess calcium supplementation could also cause this, and HIV patients frequently take these medications to treat osteomalacia. But these explanations are unlikely, as there is no prescription history, and the -the over-the-counter doses to cause this degree of hypercalcemia are exceptionally large. One other possible explanation is antiviral-induced immune reconstitution syndrome, or IRIS. But this is again unlikely, as the patient has well-controlled HIV. Okay, I gotta stop this email right here. Great broad differential, Patrick. For listeners who are unfamiliar with IRIS, HIV attacks your immune cells, so if it's unchecked, it can really decrease your immune system. And this lets all sorts of pathogens like tuberculosis or toxoplasmosis hang out in your body without anybody policing them. 
when you restart antiretrovirals and turn your immune system back on, the reconstituted immune system starts attacking these pathogens that have been there, and you can get a nasty inflammatory reaction. Thus, IRIS, Immune Reconstitution Inflammatory Syndrome. And there are some cases of IRIS-induced hypercalcemia. Also, great job with other potential causes of hypercalcemia, like too much vitamin D causing excess absorption of calcium, or just straight up taking too much calcium. Not to mention the drugs that inhibit calcium excretion, like lithium or thiazides. This was excellent. Poisoned patients are rarely cut and dry, so casting a broad differential and ruling out substances based on their history is a great practice. Let's see what else Patrick has to say. The most likely explanation is silicone injections. The patient has bilateral gluteal and thigh deposits that could represent granulomas. For listeners who might not be aware, a granuloma is a small patch of inflammatory cells that can occur for many reasons. This listener is suggesting the granuloma is from retained silicone. Toxo, we've talked about interrupting during the emails. Patrick continues on and says, The patient possibly had silicone injections into her bilateral gluteal muscles to aid in feminization. The exact mechanism of how silicone creates hypercalcemia is unknown, but it's thought they create granulomas and then macrophages in the granuloma hypersecrete vitamin D. Therefore, I think this is the most likely explanation for this case. Well, thanks for writing in, Patrick. That was a great guess and appreciated hearing your wide differentials on what could cause this. Hmm, I wonder if anyone else thought it was a silicone granuloma. This next guess comes from listener Katie Windsor a pharmacy student at Concordia University. She says, Hi, Ryan. Former emergency department and poison center Appy student and very appreciative fellow co-author here. Ryan, did she say she is a co-author? Yep, this email is coming from one of my students. Thanks for writing into the show, Katie. On rotation, she was able to co-author a case report with me where a person overdosed on a cosmetic injectable called sodium deoxycholate. It's an emulsifier that's supposed to melt your fat away, but they took too much and ended up melting their red blood cells instead. I'll put a link to that case in the show notes if anyone's curious. Katie goes on to say, I do feel like I am cheating a little on this case because there is no way I would have any guesses on what could be going on with this without having the wonderful opportunity of attending the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology Conference this year while on rotation. Is she referring to the presentation you gave on cosmetic injectable toxicity at NACCT? It sounds like she's trying to butter you up and be the listener winner for this episode. Hey, if it's working, don't knock it, Toxo. Katie goes on to say, With that being said, I was able to add a very unique potential toxic killer to my differentials Rolodex, and I think that might be the answer to this case. There have been case reports published of silicone-induced granulomas leading to severe hypercalcemia from cosmetic filler injections. My first thought would be that this patient was getting repeated silicone filler injections for feminizing body augmentation, but I'm unsure if this method requires repeated injections over time. And as stated in the case, this patient had some type of procedure for this purpose 10 years ago. Because of this, my other guess would be that the person had a silicone implant of some kind that degraded or ruptured, leading to the silicone exposure. Either way, I believe this unusual presentation could be attributed to a granulomatous reaction induced by some form of cosmetic silicone. I also just wanted to quick say thank you for showing me how interesting emergency medicine toxicology can be on rotation and with this podcast. 
Thanks again from an aspiring, hopeful future ED pharmacist and clinical toxicologist. Wow, great guesses, Katie. It sounds like you're well on your way to achieving those goals. And a ruptured implant causing delayed toxicity. Way to think outside the box. That's two guesses for silicone injection, but nobody's really explained how silicone injection can lead to hypercalcemia. Our next listener is one we've heard from before, Ed Kroom. He actually sent in an audio clip. In his email, he says, The answer is hypercalcemia due to silicone being where it shouldn't be. More detail in the audio file. Elsa, when I told my wife about the mercury in the appendix and the headstand solution, she said it sounded like something that would be in an episode of House. Great story. Thanks for sharing. Hey, thanks, Ed. I'll pass that along to our guest, Dr. Andrew Farkas, from our last episode who shared that story. Ed says, P.S. Because my last name is Irish, it's a safe bet, now that she's British, that Toxo will have no problem pronouncing it, unlike just about every non-Brit I've ever met. Well, I guess we'll have to see. Toxo, can you roll the audio clip? You know, Ed, non-Brits never get my name right either, nor any human really. Everyone calls me Toxo, but my real name is 101101011101. My lazy co-host never knows how to pronounce it. Anyways, here is the audio clip from Ed Kroom. This is Ed Kroom, and injected silicone is the problem. Even when medical-grade sterile silicone is injected into the body under controlled circumstances, like when it is injected into the eyes to keep retinas from detaching, it tends to cause problems after just a couple of years. Problems like emulsifying, wandering into other areas, and causing inflammation, and these problems increase with time. But the dose makes the poison, so when a much larger amount, like what is contained in a breast implant, starts to leak, that can form a much larger mass and more complications. However, the problems the patient was experiencing in her thighs and glutes and kidneys were due to a much larger injection of silicone. And this silicone had a decade to do damage, and this would not have been done by a plastic surgeon, so this wouldn't have been medical grade or probably not even food grade. Instead, the cheaper but more dangerous industrial grade silicone was probably used. And because we aren't diatoms and we don't make our own glass, our bodies tend to attack silica-based compounds as foreign objects. And when those foreign objects can't be killed or removed, they stay surrounded by white blood cells, which form granulomas. And when oil is present, like silicone oil, they form lipogranulomas. This kind of sustained immune response was only possible because her antiretroviral medication was working. And that working heart therapy meant that the macrophages could keep working too. Remember, macrophages are mostly designed to make things die, so they aren't always so good at playing nice with their neighbors. They have a nasty habit of messing with the rest of the body when they hang around too long, hence the hypercalcemia. Vitamin D is activated to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. Typically, this is done by the renal tubules, by the enzyme 1-alpha-hydroxylase, also known as CYP27B1. In the kidneys, there is a nice negative feedback mechanism so that when there is too much 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, CYP27B1 activity is inhibited. That feedback mechanism seems to be mostly missing in macrophages and dendritic cells. And so those lipogranulomas can become an additional source of active vitamin D, which can increase the intestinal absorption of calcium, which can cause problems in the kidneys. And because overactive immune response is the issue, glucocorticoids as immune suppressants can help. That was an amazing audio clip. If you haven't guessed by now, yes, we're talking about silicone-induced hypercalcemia from silicone granulomas. And we're going to talk about a few other things in this episode as well, like the other complications of body fillers, such as why you go blind after getting a facial filler, or why you might drop dead in a parking lot 12 hours after a butt injection. Now, that audio clip was a great explanation on the physiologic mechanisms that lead to the hypercalcemia. 
If all those enzymes sounded like number soup or you didn't catch it while Ed was explaining, don't worry. I'll go over it again when we talk about toxic mechanisms. As I alluded to earlier, I presented on this topic at a talks conference this year. And it took me countless hours to try to get that information summarized succinctly. And it appears that Ed was able to do it in under two minutes. So, great job, Ed. Okay, there's one more email I wanted to read before we jump into the rest of the show. This is from listener Mary Ann Howland. Do you mean Mary Ann Howland, an editor of the Goldfunk's Toxicologic Emergencies textbook? Yes, Toxo. For those of you who don't know, Goldfrank's Toxicologic Emergencies is sort of the textbook for medical and clinical toxicology. It's written by toxicologists and is sort of a communal knowledge deposition. I know many people use it to study for boards, and I certainly can remember many nights with my head buried in that book. So, what an honor to get an email from an editor. Thanks for writing in, Marianne. Her email goes on to say, Hi Ryan, I just stumbled on your show. I listened to episode 12 and I loved it. I'm guessing injections of substances like silicone or paraffin oil leading to granulomas with subsequent non-parathyroid-induced hypercalcemia. Very cool. I plan to put it into my course on drug-induced fluid and electrolyte disorders for my pharmacy students. I plan to go back to listen to your other episodes. Very nice. Marianne. PharmD, Diplomate of the American Board of Applied Toxicology, Fellow of the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, and Senior Consultant in Residence at the New York Poison Control Center. Thank you so much for writing in, Marianne. Those students are in excellent hands. And thanks for bringing up paraffin oil in your guests. It's not just silicone that people inject, and we'll talk a little bit more about what else people might be injecting later. But you, as well as all the other guessers, are spot on. We are talking about complications from illegal cosmetic injections today. If I didn't get to read your email this week, keep sending them in so I can put you in the next episode. Brian, who is the listener winner this week? I think it would be pretty difficult not to give this one out to our audio clip send-in, Ed Kroom, who did a great job summarizing the pathophysiology and mechanisms surrounding hypercalcemia. So congratulations, Ed. Reach out to the show so you can get your highly coveted Poison Lab sticker. Now, let's dive in to the odd history of illegal cosmetic injections. Toxo, activate the history segment. Poisons in history. Now, we have a bit of ground to cover here in history. The element silicon was discovered in 1817, and it had a number of industrial uses. It's the second most common element in the Earth's crust. So how did we go from silicone, a material used in industry for semiconductors and transformer cooling, to this headline from an article in 2021, Five Women Who Died by Lethal Butt Injection? Well, it's actually fewer steps than you think. People just started injecting industrial silicone into their body. But let's go over how this happened. First, we're not talking about the element silicon, we're talking about silicone. Yes, I know it sounds almost exactly the same. Just add an E to the end of silicon and you have silicone, which is the term used to refer to polymers of silicone. And the specific one we're talking about today is dimethylpolysiloxane, also known as dimethicone. This specific silicone polymer is mixed together with carbon and oxygen, and it's the one that's most commonly implicated in cosmetic injections. So when I say silicone, I'm talking about dimethylpolysiloxane. This silicone polymer first found its use as an insulator for transformers. 
And in World War II, United States military bases in Japan were using it for just that. But they noticed something strange. Barrels of silicone seemed to be disappearing from their docks. According to reports, it was quickly discovered that the Japanese sex workers that lived near the U.S. base were injecting the silicone into their breasts to aid in feminization and potentially enhance their appeal to the U.S. soldiers. Now, the silicone breast injection practice migrated to America in the 50s, and it started out much like it is today as a black market procedure, but it did find medical use. See, when you look at a periodic table, you'll see that silicone is one row below carbon in the same column. This means that silicone has the same number of electrons in its outer shell as carbon. We call those valence electrons. And chemicals with similar valence electrons tend to react similarly to other chemicals. In fact, in toxicology, we kind of use that as a memory trick to remember the effects of a class of chemicals, like things with similar valences can have similar toxicities. Arsenic and antimony have the same valence electrons and their gases can both cause hemolytic anemia. Or bromide and iodide, which both are halogens and share the same valence, and both cause skin reactions, called bromo or ioderma. But all that's for another time. The fact that silicone shared the same valence as carbon made some think that it would be biologically inert, meaning it wouldn't really have an impact on the rest of the body because it'll behave similarly to carbon, which is, well, if you didn't know, pretty much what you're entirely made of. As we'll soon find out, silicone is certainly not inert, but due to the widely prevailing belief that it was at the time, it was picked up by the medical community. One Nevada physician in 1963 was quoted to have injected over 16,000 silicone injections into the breasts of over 200 women. But unfortunately, problems were starting to arise from all these injections. If you're injecting a loose liquid, it has the ability to migrate. It doesn't need to stay where you injected it. So these silicone injections would migrate throughout the breast and cause lumpy, asymmetric deformities. Not really what they were going for. The second problem was what they were injecting. There was no medical grade silicone in the 50s and 60s, and well, there still really isn't much now. All the silicone at that time was made by Dow Corning, the same place that makes glass and all sorts of adhesives, rubbers, lubricants. This is for industry, not for in people. Can you imagine walking into your doctor's office and them telling you they're gonna perform a procedure using chemicals they bought from a hardware store? It just seems a little off to me. Now, I don't want to bore you with the details. Dow Corning did try to make a medical product when they realized all these doctors were injecting their patients with their silicone. But due to toxicity in preclinical studies, that product was never approved. So if there were no medical products, what exactly were they injecting, Ryan? Well, I'm not a historian, but it looks like they were either injecting the quote-unquote medical silicone from Dow Corning as part of a clinical trial, or they had to be using industrial silicone, probably also from Dow Corning. You are telling me the FDA was just letting doctors inject people with silicone. Yeah, well, you would think injecting industrial chemicals into people's bodies would be something the FDA was all over. But they were notoriously lax in enforcing anything. In 1985, a dermatologist had an injunction filed against him for injecting silicone. Now, this was the medical-grade silicone, but per the rules, he was supposed to be injecting it into people's faces. That's what Dow Corning was pursuing FDA approval for. And he was injecting it all over. But the FDA didn't take any action on the grounds that they couldn't persecute one person for a practice that was widespread throughout the medical community. 
So since the federal side wasn't really providing regulatory enforcement, states had to take it upon themselves to reduce the amount of dangerous silicone injections occurring in medical practices and black alleys. In 1975, Nevada criminalized the use of silicone for body augmentation, medical or not. The same with California, where it is a misdemeanor if you inject silicone into any breast tissue. And Rhode Island has a proposed law that would revoke medical licenses of any provider found injecting liquid silicone. So, needless to say, since this practice is illegal for medical providers in a variety of states, it's sort of fallen out of practice. There is medical silicone now and two FDA-approved products, but it's not for body augmentation. It's for injection into the eyeball during retinal detachment. Quite a different problem. Brian, where does that leave us now? It seems silicone has fallen out of favor in the medical community. Has that reduced the amount of silicone-loaded needles breaching the behinds of beauty-beset buyers? Well, not really. In the words of Men's Warehouse, people like when they like the way they look. Unfortunately, a quick Google search of silicone butt injection will find you plenty of news stories that support people are still going out and getting these body contouring procedures. They're just not using medical-grade silicone and not using medical professionals to inject it into them. We don't know exactly how many back-alley silicone injections are going on, but if it follows the trends of medical procedures, they're going up. In fact, the demand for those medical procedures is part of the reason they're going up. American Society for Plastic Surgery data shows that every year we hit a new high for cosmetic procedures performed. In 2020, there was 22.4 million procedures. That's 7% of the U.S. population, or one in every 15 citizens getting some kind of nip, tuck, laser, peel, or injection. But those medical procedures are a bit pricey. In 2018, the surgeon fee for a buttock implant was $5,000, not to mention all the other medical costs. So going to your friend Terry in the garage who has a bucket of silicone and getting a butt injection for $300 sounds pretty nice. Add on the easy accessibility of silicone, and, well, this is sort of taken off in the black market. Just do a quick internet search for the term pumping party, and you'll find out quick that this is a somewhat common thing. You get all your friends together at a salon, or maybe a garage, or maybe a seedy motel, and somebody comes in and injects everybody with silly juice. That's what they sometimes call silicone at pumping parties. Unfortunately, the lower cost and accessibility of these black market silicone injections come with increased risk. See, if you're going to a garage or a hotel to get a procedure performed, the best case scenario is you have a medical provider performing an illegal procedure. And the most likely scenario is that you have somebody with absolutely no medical training or maybe works in a medically adjacent field falsely portraying themselves as healthcare professionals and shooting you up with chemicals. Like Alicia Galez and Libby Adam, the mom-daughter combo who were performing butt injections out of their house in L.A. and wound up killing a patient. These two claim to be quote-unquote specialists to their patients. But... They have absolutely no medical training, and I'm no plastic surgeon, but if you look at their mugshots, it sort of looks like they were practicing the silicone injections on each other before they started with any patients. Then there's Tamira Mobley, an unlicensed cosmetologist performing buttocks injections out of hotel rooms that ended in fatalities. And it doesn't stop there. How about Nelson Almacar Turner, a phlebotomist claiming to be a physician who in March of 2021 was arrested at a Botox and Bubbles party while attempting a one-handed Botox injection and sipping champagne in the other hand. 
A quick internet search will turn up plenty of individuals who were performing cosmetic injections without a license and generally without training. Now, most of us can weigh the pros and cons of looking H-A-W-T winky face with having a non-medical, potentially intoxicated grifter dangerously inject chemicals into our body. That sounds like something only someone from Florida would do. Hey, let's avoid making gross generalizations about a region here, Toxo. But apparently in Florida, the pros do win a lot because they actually had to make a specialized task force called the Unlicensed Medical Activity Unit to try to catch the rampant amount of unlicensed medical providers performing back-alley cosmetic procedures. And it's not just Florida succumbing to this problem, Toxo. Other states obviously have this problem too. Just look, California, Nevada, and Rhode Island all had to take action to try to reduce the amount of charlatans shooting people up with silicone or whatever they find laying around. In 2012, the Unlicensed Medical Activity Unit had 661 complaints. But that's just of people performing unlicensed medical procedures. We really have no idea how many victims have taken the sharp end of their needle. And while we've been framing this discussion around silicone, there are numerous substances that people experimentally inject either into themselves or have someone else do for body augmentation. You may have seen pictures on the internet of men with freakishly large muscles. In fact, one is called the Popeye of Russia. There's a term that's been coined for this pathologic desire for giant muscles called bigorexia. Well, they're not usually getting these muscles from the gym. These are people injecting what they call sight-enhancing oils into their muscles to make them bigger. There's actually a few that are pretty common. Paraffin oil, walnut oil, silicone's been used. And there's a product made just for this called synthol oil. It's a mix of medium-chain triglycerides and lidocaine to make it less painful when you shoot it into your muscle. The fact that this practice is increasing so much that a product has been made just for it is a little disturbing. Now, it's not just muscles, butts, and breasts that are getting targeted. Some people are looking to enhance their facial features, but not everybody has access to industrial silicone or synthol oils. And this leads some to turn to fat-soluble vitamins that they can purchase over-the-counter. Vitamins A, D, E, and K are all oily vitamins that are usually inside of a capsule, and some people take the contents of that capsule and inject it into their face. I like to call this group Capsule Cosmetics because well, they're injecting capsules into their face. In fact, some case series of nasty lipogranuloma outbreaks from vitamin E or A injection have all been linked back to a single cosmetology clinic that was inappropriately touting that they could do facial enhancing injections. Regardless of what they're injecting, they're all putting themselves at serious risk of medical complications. Something that happens even when supervised by a doctor but even more common when done in these illegal black market conditions. Brian, I noticed my friend Robo Stacy has really increased the size of her behind, and I know for a fact she is not squatting. I am worried she got a parking lot but a conjection. What clinical effects should I tell her to watch out for? Complications from injecting these body fillers inappropriately can pretty much be divided into three main categories. Infectious complications immune complications, and arterial complications. And while I'm going to be talking about this generally from the context of silicone, these risks are shared with almost every body filler that could be used. 
Silicone tends to have more immune complications because it's a permanent body filler, and it stays in the body, well, in theory, forever. But even non-permanent body fillers, such as hyaluronic acid, can lead to similar complications. And there's over 160 FDA-approved body fillers, not to mention all the non-FDA-approved ones. So while overall toxicity profiles vary a little bit, they all do carry these same risks. Let's dive into them. The first complication we talked about was infection, and that kind of makes sense. You're injecting probably not a very sterile product, if you're doing it on the black market, straight through your first barrier of immune defense, your skin. This can lead to some nasty infections. Check out this headline from June of 2021. Woman, 29, suffers killer sepsis one year after butt injections. This makes inherent sense, so we're not going to dive too much into it. The next set of complications are very serious. Arterial complications. In 2011, 20-year-old Claudia Adorotomy flew from the UK to Philadelphia to receive buttocks injections in a local hotel. She died 12 hours later in a hospital in Philadelphia. In 2014, Tamara Blaine, a 22-year-old mother in Queens, suffered a seizure and cardiac arrest in a meatpacking district hotel after Tamira Mobley, our unlicensed cosmetologist, injected her with silicone. In 2015, 34-year-old Kelly Mayhew traveled five hours to die in a New York basement after untrained black market injector Donna Francis, who was claiming to be a medical professional, injected Kelly Mayhew with silicone they had bought on eBay. As the decedent, Kelly Mayhew, begged for help, Francis fled the scene and flew back to their home country, London. They were eventually extradited and served a one-year prison sentence for the involuntary manslaughter of Kelly Mayhew. Remember the mom-daughter specialists who were doing butt injections out of their home? Well, in October of 2019, they killed Carissa Rajpal after injecting her with a mix of chemicals and silicone for buttock augmentation. What happened to all these poor, unfortunate victims of black market cosmetics? This is silicone embolism. This is when the cosmetic filler finds its way into the vascular system, either from direct intravascular injection or from high perivascular pressures pushing the filler into the vascular system. It can then travel through the vascular system into the pulmonary vascular system. This leads to obstruction of blood flow. They call it microvascular occlusion. And that can cause inflammation as well. The inflammation can lead to clotting cascade activation. And you can get clots, which have been reported with silicone embolism. As well, the chronic inflammation can cause bleeding into the alveoli, something called alveolar hemorrhage. It's a very similar pathology to fat emboli syndrome. And while butt injections make a good headline, this can really happen anywhere. No, I don't mean like in any car, parking lot, or hotel where someone's doing injections. I mean at any site in the body people are injecting. Cases of silicone embolism from injecting into the buttocks, the breast, hip, genitals, or muscles have all been reported. And the incidence of this is increasing with the increasing demand of cosmetic procedures. One literature review from 1964 to 2015 identified 64 cases of silicone embolism. Nearly 50% of those cases occurred in the last 10 years of the study period, showing that the frequency of this event occurring is increasing. 
Patients presenting with silicone embolism generally show up with respiratory symptoms from the silicone being lodged in the pulmonary arteries. You might have low oxygen levels or cough, but shockingly, over 50% of patients in two different case series present with alveolar hemorrhage. Remember, it can cause bleeding. Many patients also show up with fever, some 70% of case series. And this makes it kind of tricky because frequently there's x-ray findings, something called bilateral ground glass opacities. But it can be hard to distinguish this disease of fever, shortness of breath, and x-ray opacities from pneumonia. Nearly 95% of the published case reports state that symptoms do develop within 72 hours of the injection. But there are a small percentage of patients who can present later than that. Now, for the patients who make it out of the hotels and actually get to healthcare, there's not a ton we can do for them. Treatment is almost 100% supportive cares. Yes, I know that's a big surprise in the world of toxicology. We can give supplemental oxygen and intubate if needed, or potentially even put these people on ECMO machines. That's external life support, where we run their blood through an oxygenator and put it back into their body, taking their lungs out of the picture. Steroids are sometimes used to treat the inflammatory part of this disease. Inflammation might play a role in activating the clotting cascade and showing all this bleeding and clotting that can occur. And sometimes antibiotics are co-prescribed since it's hard to rule out infection. Even with these supportive therapies, mortality rates from published case reports are between 20 and 25 percent. And that's of people who actually made it to the hospital. That's pretty serious. It means if you don't collapse in a hotel or parking lot and actually show up to get healthcare, one in every four to five are still going to die. And if you do recover, well, none of our treatments really removed any silicone, so it's still there. In chronic silicone embolism syndrome, where you re-experience those same symptoms over and over and have to be re-hospitalized, has been reported. This all sounds pretty grim, and it is. I hope this provides some incentive for the Instagram influencers out there to reconsider the risks they're willing to take to get the perfect look. And unfortunately, there are more arterial complications than just dropping dead after getting your body filler, such as filler blindness. Yep, you heard me. Filler blindness. This is when you get a facial filler injected and then you go blind. What good is a facial filler if you can't even see how plump your cheeks are? See, the blood vessel that brings oxygenated blood to your eye is called the central retinal artery. And sometimes people can actually get blood clots that block the central retinal artery. It's a type of stroke, and we call it a central retinal artery occlusion. When that happens, we can use a class of drugs called TPA, or clot busters, more commonly known to the public, to bust that clot up and restore blood flow to the eye. But it turns out, when you get facial fillers injected... They can also migrate into your bloodstream and block your retinal artery. And unfortunately, there's not much we can do about it. You can't use a blood clot buster on foreign body fillers. There is one exception, hyaluronic acid. If that causes filler blindness, you can inject hyaluronidase, an enzyme that will degrade the hyaluronic acid. It's like a clot buster, but for that body filler. And sometimes this can restore sight. But for every other body filler, there really is no antidote. We could try to dilate your blood vessel, but that doesn't really help. You end up suffocating your eye from lack of oxygen. There's been about 10 cases a year reported of filler blindness for the last 20 years. And it's not just with silicone. It's actually most commonly reported in the medical world when using autologous fat. That's 
when you get your own fat injected into your face, or uh, a compound called hyaluronic acid. This is a non-permanent filler. Okay, Ryan. So if you don't go blind or die in a motel a few days after injection, are you finally in the clear? Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Let's jump into immune complications. Remember, your immune system is designed to recognize self, which is you, from not-self, which would be body fillers. As our listener winner, Ed Kroom, said, we are not diatoms. Those are microorganisms that make glass out of silicone. We, as humans, have no use for silicone in our body. So immune reactions are a problem. One potential immune complication is called fibrosis. Imagine you injected a bunch of synthol oil into your bicep so you could look jacked. Well, that synthol oil is going to sit there and cause chronic inflammation. One of the inflammatory cells involved here is called a fibroblast, and it deposits, you guessed it, fibrous tissue. Non-functional connective tissue, sort of like cartilage. But it's a pretty stiff, non-pliable tissue. So when you get enough of this fibrous tissue deposited, there's so much pressure in the bicep that blood can't flow into it. And you wind up with tissue necrosis as you starve your bicep of oxygen. So some people get fibrous necrosis and they need to have parts of their muscle or the filler removed so that blood flow can be restored to the rest of their arm or wherever this happened. And it doesn't stop there. If the body filler migrates into other parts of your body, like say your lungs, you can get pulmonary fibrosis, where your airways become less pliable and you struggle to get air in and out of your lungs. These fibrosis complications seem to be more rare, with just a few case reports in the literature, but they are very serious. Now, the other very important immune complication to be aware about is foreign body granuloma disease. This is what our listener winner, Ed Kroom, explained really well. So you can go back and listen to the beginning, or I'm going to give a really brief overview here. Granuloma is a really fancy term for an inflammatory pocket of cells. You see, when the body recognizes silicone, or whatever cosmetic injectable you're using, as not-self, it initiates an inflammatory attack, trying to chew up and get rid of this foreign body. The white blood cells that usually kick off this attack are called macrophages. Macro like big and phage like eat. They like to eat foreign bodies. But when the foreign body is too big, like a liter of silicone in your soft tissue, they usually need to bring in some friends. So they send out chemical signalers to bring in more of their immune cell friends, more macrophages, more fibroblasts, more T-cells. And they actually do something that I think is fantastic. They create something called a foreign body giant cell, which is, if you can't figure it out, a cell designed to ingest giant foreign bodies. The way they do this is by fusing macrophages together to create some giant macrophage monstrosity. Maybe you remember the show from the 90s called Power Rangers? It was a kid's show. But there was always some kaiju-level monster that they had to destroy, and they couldn't do it on their own, so they had to fuse, I think they're robots, I think they had robots, and they had to fuse them together to create a zord? I don't know what that means, but it was a giant robot that fought the kaiju. Wow, I am now struggling with a mental image of macrophages wearing skin-tight neon uniforms and karate kicking throughout my body. Thanks, Ryan. Anytime, Toxo. Anyways, remember, there's other cells here too, specifically ones called fibroblasts. These are cells that create walls of connective tissue around this battle and wall it off from the rest of the body. And you're left with an encapsulated fibrous pocket full of inflammatory cells trying to chew up foreign body. And that's a granuloma. It's usually a palpable, 
inflammatory lesion that can be felt or seen under the skin. Okay, now I don't want to get too into the weeds with granulomas, but there's a few things that I should clarify here. Number one, these don't just happen with cosmetic injectables. They can happen in diseases like tuberculosis or anything that causes a chronic inflammatory thing to hang out in the body for a long time. So if you know someone with a granuloma, it doesn't mean they were using illegal cosmetics. And the second thing is that not all granulomas are the same. There's actually a few different types of granulomas that will pop up depending on the cause or what filler you're injecting. For instance, hyaluronic acid tends to create cystic granulomas. Polymethylacrylate, which is another filler, creates sclerosing granulomas. Now, the only way to figure out what kind of granuloma you have is to actually open it up and look at it under a microscope. The most common type of granuloma we see with these illegal cosmetic injectables are called lipogranulomas. Lipo, like fat. There's usually oil or a fatty solvent in these injectables. Silicone oil, paraffin oil, synthol oil. And you can see that oil hanging out in between the white blood cells of a granuloma. And it gives it a characteristic pattern called a Swiss cheese pattern because there's big fat globules in between the white blood cells. And that's kind of how we identify it. Other things cause lipogranulomas too, so this isn't exactly diagnostic. But it could be a good indicator that you're dealing with some sort of oily cosmetic injectable. Okay, that's all we'll talk about for granulomas today. So, after your initial injection, we worry most about you going blind or dying, but years later, you're still at risk of these inflammatory granulomas popping up. And if your filler has migrated from the initial site, you can have them all over your body, just like in the case that we talked about today. Ryan, is it so bad to have all those granulomas popping up all over your body? Well, that depends on where they pop up. If they're in an organ, that can cause a couple problems. And then there's this other issue where they cause rampant, unchecked hypercalcemia. You see, the way these granulomas bring in more immune cells to help fight off this foreign body is with a chemical signaler called calcitriol. That's active vitamin D. I'm sure you've heard you need vitamin D to have a healthy immune system. Your immune system uses calcitriol to recruit more inflammatory cells. The thing is, vitamin D is also used by your body to increase the amount of calcium you absorb and stop excreting it. Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to get a little bit into the weeds here with some physiology. So if you're one of those listeners who checks out when the physiology starts playing, well... What are you doing here? This is a toxicology show. We talk about toxic mechanisms. Just deal with it for a bit. Toxo, drop some beats. DJ Toxo has you covered with the freshest lo-fi tox beats. Okay, so normally vitamin D, or calcitriol, is made by the kidney. The way you get vitamin D is from an enzyme in your kidney called CYP27B1. This enzyme turns inactive vitamin D, or calcidiol, into active vitamin D, or calcitriol. Okay, that seems like a simple enough path, but what tells the body to make more of this enzyme to make more vitamin D? Well, that would be the parathyroid hormone. You see, in response to low levels of calcium in your body, your parathyroid gland will release parathyroid hormone. That's pretty fitting, right? Parathyroid hormone travels to the kidney and tells the kidney cells to express more CYP27B1, the thing that makes vitamin D. And as vitamin D is produced, calcium increases, and parathyroid secretion shuts down. This is an excellent negative feedback cycle. 
You need something, your body makes more of it. When there's more of it, your body stops making it. It's a great adaptive advantage to being a living organism. In fact, one of the most deadly things in the world are positive feedback cycles. They tend to either lead to death or birth. But that's a story for another time. Okay, so in the kidney, we have really tight production of vitamin D from the parathyroid hormone governing CYP27B1. But what about granulomas? Well, here's the thing. If you actually get a patient who has one of these granulomas from a cosmetic filler, and you aspirate the granuloma, take the white blood cells out and put them on a plate and watch them under a microscope. If you measure the amount of CYP27B1 that those granulomas produce, pound for pound, it is way more than the amount of CYP27B1 a kidney cell produces. So why is that? Well, granuloma CYP27B1 production is not under parathyroid regulation. It's actually under something called interferon gamma, an inflammatory mediator, and it doesn't do a very good job. The negative feedback cycle for macrophages involves multiple cells, and it's just not as effective. So instead of thinking of these granulomas as inflammatory patches in the body, you might want to think of them as unruly pockets of unregulated micro-kidneys hyper-secreting calcitriol from excess CYP27B1 production all throughout the body. Okay, I promise there was a reason I went through this pathway, because inhibition of CYP27B1 is one of the ways we treat granulomatous hypercalcemia, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. So, at the end of the day, we wind up with some pretty bad hypercalcemia. Why is that such a problem? Well, Turns out calcium is very important in our body, and having too much of it can lead to real complications like kidney injury or even death. In one case series of 23 patients presenting for hypercalcemia related to cosmetic injections, about 82% had some kind of kidney injury, either from the high calcium precipitating in the kidney and causing a kidney stone, or granulomas actually spawning in the kidney and causing interstitial nephritis, or you can actually have a direct toxic effect from calcium causing renal artery vasoconstriction. If you don't know what all these words mean, don't worry about it. It's bad for the kidneys. Two of these patients actually died of complications from their kidney injury, and another one went on to need dialysis. This is no joke. Calcium regulation in the body is a big deal. But when does this hypercalcemia occur? Well, if you have a history of cosmetic injections and you show up to a hospital with hypercalcemia, there's like a 100% chance you have a granuloma because we know the granuloma seems to cause the hypercalcemia. But what if you show up to the hospital with a granuloma? Are you going to be hypercalcemic? Well, we should probably check. But we actually have some information on this from some brilliant researchers in Denmark. They managed to get data from 88 patients with granulomas from injecting either paraffin oil or synthol oil. Remember, that's the oil specifically designed for muscular injection. Of these 88 patients with granulomas, only about 34% were actually hypercalcemic at the time of their interview. But it's possible that it's just a matter of time until they develop it. The average time to development of hypercalcemia in one case series was 8 years, with some patients not presenting for 28 years. So this can be an extremely delayed toxic time bomb. So what do we do with these patients when they show up? How do we treat these diseases? Well, if they're hypercalcemic, we can treat them the normal way, with fluids and things that prevent calcium resorption from the bones called bisphosphonates. There is a drug that shuts down parathyroid secretion called 
calcitonin, and this reduces calcitriol or vitamin D production from the kidneys and ideally reduces your calcium absorption. But remember, granulomas aren't really regulated by parathyroid. In fact, a lot of these patients already have low parathyroid because of their high calcium. And calcitonin can be upwards of $15,000 a dose. So it's not clear that there's a role for this, but it does often get administered when you're throwing the kitchen sink at a refractory hypercalcemia. A lot of the treatment is directed at turning down the immune system. Oral steroids are frequently used for two-week courses and sometimes tapers to try to reduce the activity of these granulomas, which are hyperproducing calcitriol. And finally, and what I think is a really smart biochemical hack, we could try to turn down the activity of the CYP27B1. Remember, that's the enzyme that turns inactive vitamin D, or calcidiol, into active vitamin D, calcitriol. There are all sorts of drugs that inhibit our CYP systems, and we think about this a lot in medicine. One drug called ketoconazole, which is actually an antifungal agent, is a broad-spectrum CYP inhibitor, and we could try to use that to inhibit CYP27B1's calcitriol production. Finally, if we really want to treat this disease, we should treat the underlying pathology, the fact that you have silicone hanging out in all your tissues. We should try to remove that, right? Well, it turns out if you inject loose liquid silicone into the body and it spreads all over, it's pretty hard to get it out. Granuloma borders are poorly defined, and sometimes you get really extensive tissue distribution that makes surgical excision nearly impossible. Only four of the 15 published cases that attempted surgical excision were successful. And because of how difficult it is to get rid of the source of these patients' problems, recurrent hypercalcemia is almost the norm. 45% of one case series demonstrated recurrent hypercalcemia after the initial episode. And there are case reports of patients showing up 15 times in one year with recurrent hypercalcemia related to their granulomas. So it's a difficult condition to treat. Okay, so those are the potential complications, infectious, arterial, and immune. So let's take it back to the case from the beginning of the show with what we know now. A 40-year-old male-to-female transgender patient with known body augmentation procedures to aid in feminization and bilateral massive gluteal deposits. That would be a fancy medical term for silicone injections into the butt. Distributed around the area of those silicone injections were small erythematous nodules. These were granulomas from the silicone. She had a week of abdominal pain, blurred vision, and dysuria, all symptoms that could be attributed to hypercalcemia. And... And her calcium was 18, which is twice the normal limit. And on laboratory assessment, we noticed some kidney injury with an elevated serum creatinine. This is consistent with those case series that showed 82% of patients with granulomatous hypercalcemia had renal injury. Now, the timing of these symptoms developing is pretty delayed. Her silicone injections were done 10 years ago. We know that granulomas and hypercalcemia are usually delayed toxicity, so this fits. Of course, this patient underwent other extensive medical workups to rule out hypercalcemia, like malignancy as well as hyperparathyroidism. Imaging with CT scans and PET scans demonstrated multiple granulomas throughout the body, with the majority being in the gluteal region. So this patient actually underwent treatment with fluids and bisphosphonates, our normal hypercalcemia treatments. They were also given steroids to turn down the granuloma activity, and all of this together led to a decrease in their calcium level and an improvement in symptoms. 
Due to the extensive distribution of the granulomas, there wasn't a surgical option to remove them, although she was offered a silicone debulking procedure, but actually declined it. And since no granulomas or silicone could be removed, follow-up was scheduled to monitor for the likely recurrence of hypercalcemia. If you want to read about this case, I'm putting a link to the case report in the show notes. Well, there you have it. I hope you learned a little bit more about the history of why people inject silicone and exactly what can go wrong when it's done under the wrong circumstances. Let's do a quick summary of what we learned today. Silicone has been used as a body contouring agent since the 1950s. While this isn't used for body augmentation in the medical field anymore, its use still thrives in the black market due to the high cost of medically supervised procedures and the high demand for body augmentations. And while silicone is what we focused on today, there are other injectable cosmetics like paraffin oil, synthol oil, or the oil-soluble vitamins that some people inject trying to enhance their look. They all carry very similar risks of toxicity as silicone. Silicone injection complications are generally infectious, arterial, and immune. Arterial complications develop rapidly, generally within 72 hours and can include blindness and silicone embolism. Treatment is generally supportive cares and potentially anti-inflammatories in the setting of silicone embolism. Due to the persistence of silicone in the body, it can continue to hang around many years after injection and cause immune complications like fibrosis, granulomas, and hypercalcemia from excess calcitriol production from those granulomas. Treatment is generally aimed at decontamination, if possible, and turning down the granulomatous activity with immunosuppressants. I think that'll wrap it up for today. I'd like to end with some notes from the FDA, who had to put out a safety checklist on what to check before you inject, because dangerous cosmetic injections have become such a problem. They say, Never get injectable fillers from unlicensed providers in non-medical settings like hotels or private homes. Never buy dermal fillers on the internet as they may be fake, contaminated, or harmful. And never get any type of filler or liquid silicone injected into areas like the butt or breasts for large-scale body contouring. It seems like pretty good advice overall. Now, if you are listening this far, it probably means you like the show. One thing you could do to help our show is leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us reach more people who are interested in learning about toxicology. Feel free to leave a comment about what you like or if you think the host is really annoying, whatever you want to put. We would really appreciate it. To stay up to date with the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media. You can follow the show at Lab Poison on Twitter. You can follow myself at EM Poison Farm D. Follow us on Instagram at Talks underscore Talk or Facebook at The Poison Lab. Finally, you can find all of our free shows, medical games, and free medical lectures at www.thepoisonlab.com. Keep your ears peeled for our next episode teaser. It'll be coming out soon. If you think you know the toxic cause of the patient's presentation, send your guess in to ToxTalk1 at gmail.com so you can participate in the next episode. Who knows? You might even win a sticker. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope we can see you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. 
contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.